We're going to be looking at the book of James together, and uh, the fellows have some Bibles. If you'll turn to James 1. James 1 and the guys have Bibles, so if you need one, get their attention so that you can look at James 1 with us in just a bit. Here's what's going on this Sunday and then the next five after today during this hour, 11 o'clock, four adult classes going on simultaneous. So that's why we are thinner than we normally are in terms of our numbers in here because uh, we have uh, emptied out a good bit of our folks to the other two, three classes. One of those is our young adult class, Crossroads, young adult singles. But then we have two marriage classes going on as well, one for young marrieds, uh, roughly ages 20 to 30, and then another for home builders, we call it, uh, that's 30 and over. So if you want to participate in either of those, it doesn't hurt my feelings, that's why we offer them, because we think they are good for building our families. And they had their first session of seven last week, and we heard very good things about that. So I'm very hopeful about how the Lord is going to use that in the lives of our couples and families. But we then, during these now next six weeks counting today, are going to be looking at the uh, book of James. We began that last week, and I've titled this series, The Behavior of Belief. The Behavior of Belief, and I'll explain what that is in just a bit. So James 1 in just a moment. Here are some of the things that are coming up, just as a a reminder. Uh, You need to uh, make note on your calendars of August the 8th. That's our video road rally for our adults. And uh, you need to find, if you have children, you need to find a child care for them because it is an adult activity that starts at 4 o'clock on Saturday the 8th. We'll meet at First Baptist of Gibraltar. That's in your program. August the 12th is our third of three backyard fellowships for the summer. That's Wednesday night, August the 12th at 6.30 at the home of uh, Peter and Wanda Stevenson on uh, Grozeal. So the 8th, the video road rally, the 12th is the, is the um, backyard fellowship. And then on the 22nd, August the 22nd, Saturday, is our vow renewal ceremony. So if you, any of you couples want to participate in a vow renewal ceremony, we'll be doing it that Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock, the 22nd. We're doing this in conjunction with the marriage classes that we're offering, but you don't need to be in the marriage classes in order to participate in the vow renewal. We just need to know that you're doing it because we have to plan accordingly. So there's a sign-up sheet that was on the resource table. It may be circulating in the marriage classes right now. Is it? Does anyone know? They were supposed to take it and circulate it in the... You had one on the table. So they might have a separate one. If you don't see it over there, then uh, let me know that you want to participate and uh, we'll put you on the list, okay? And then last, August the 29th, Saturday the 29th, is our next Newcomers Brunch. That's for anybody who has not attended one of the brunches at our house. We offer them periodically. The next one is that Saturday the 29th, 10 a.m. to noon. We'd love to have you come over, so let me or Kim know so we can add you to the list. Today, our second session in, uh, in James, The Behavior of Belief. I'm sorry, I need to tell you one other thing. We'll be gone next week. And uh, so I won't be here to teach this class. During the 9.30 hour, Brother Matt Owen is going to be preaching. Zach did a terrific job preaching for us today. And Matt will do the same next week, I know. During this hour, Brother Dan Elwert is going to teach this class in my stead next Sunday. And so two weeks from today, we'll pick up where we leave off in our study of James, all right? Last week, we introduced the behavior of belief, James, in chapter 1. And we saw that genuine, real, vital faith 
results in actions. It results in works. That people who say they have faith, and remember the synonym for faith in your New Testament? Anybody remember? Faith is the same word in your New Testament as believe. So anyone who says, I believe, then, should be able to demonstrate the reality, the genuineness of that belief by what they do. And James makes the case that if you don't have actions that are consistent with what you say you believe, it calls into question the genuineness, the reality of your faith, what you claim to believe. So James is, in his five chapters, making the case that it is not enough to simply say, profess that I believe. There is such a thing as disingenuous faith, false faith, false profession. And so faith can be tested in terms of its genuineness, whether or not it's vital, alive, or what James calls in James 2, a dead faith. And how can it be, how can it be tested? Well, James gives, as I gave you last week, nine tests, no fewer than nine tests for genuine belief. And I'll just rattle those off quickly again. But faith is tested in terms of its response to trials, he says, in chapter 1. Toward the end of chapter 1, it's tested in terms of its response to and reliance on Scripture. In chapter 2, a third test is in our relations with other people, do we show partiality? So trials in Scripture and, and partiality. In chapter 2 as well, James says, genuine faith issues forth in works, in good works in general. And so faith and its genuineness is tested with regard to works. When you come to chapter 3, fifthly, it's tested with regard to the wisdom that it demonstrates in the various circumstances of life, particularly how we use our tongues. Chapter 4, a sixth test, is in our relationship to the world, worldliness. Chapter 4 as well has a seventh test, and that is whether or not we are prideful. True belief understands its true position before God, and there's no room, therefore, for pride. Eighth, perseverance. Is this individual who claims to have faith persevering in that faith? And then last, chapter 5, Faith is tested with regard to its resort to prayer. Nine tests of the genuineness of faith in these five chapters that is James' letter to these early Christians. And they are tests then for you and me as well. The very first of those is trials. And we saw in chapter 1, in verse 2, famously, look with me if you will, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. And we saw last week that that first of these nine tests tells us in verse 2 that these trials that we fall into, that verse 3 says, test the genuineness, the reality of our faith, fall into, have these characteristics. These trials are first unavoidable. It says, consider it, count it pure joy, brothers, when, not if. So they are unavoidable. You're going to have them. And then he says, consider it pure joy whenever you fall, which means they're not only unavoidable, they're unplanned because you fall into them. You're just going along through life and they happen to you. 
unavoidable. They are unplanned. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into these unplanned circumstances called trials, which is the third characteristic. They're unwanted. They try you. They're hard. They're difficult. That's what a trial, that's what a trial is. And so they're, un, they're unplanned, unavoidable, unplanned. They're unwanted. And then lastly in verse 2, we saw last week, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. They're unlimited. They come in all shapes and sizes, and the word is varieties, various kinds. It can be a person, it can be a circumstance, it can be a health issue, it can be a pink slip. All of those fall into these trials that are unlimited in their variety. And all of them are designed to test the genuineness of our faith. Now, why can't I, why can you then, in those difficult circumstances that the Bible calls trials, why can we do what verse 2 commands? Consider it, count it all joy. How can we do that? Well, first we need to understand that the Bible is not commanding us to take joy in difficulty. That is, it's not joyful. It's not, it's not cool. They're hard. And the Bible calls them trials because it recognizes they are hardships. They are difficult. That you are hard-pressed by these things. So it's not that you're happy about it. You're not happy to be going through this. And in fact, there were times when Jesus or Paul were in peril, they were in danger, and they took measures to avoid that danger. They didn't say, oh good, look what's awaiting me. But nevertheless, when you turn away from one, living in a fallen world, inevitably you're going to fall into others. That's just life in a fallen world. It doesn't mean we, we want them. It doesn't mean we enjoy the trial itself. The trial is hard, it's difficult. It doesn't mean that. Here's what it means. Verse 3 tells us, here's how you can consider it all joy. Because, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith works, produces perseverance or patience. Here's why I can be joyful in the midst of a difficult circumstance because of what I know. And what I know is that this did not just happen, but rather this is planned by God. It wasn't planned by me. As I said, they're unavoidable and they're unplanned and they're unwanted and they're unlimited. I didn't plan it, but God has planned it. And God has planned it for an ultimately good purpose. Verse 3, because you know that something purposeful is going on in this test. You know that the testing of your faith produces something ultimately good. Perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you become completely mature, James says. And that's where we need to then pick up. So the difference between someone who undergoes a difficult circumstance that God has designed for good and comes out of it mature which is what God's design is, right? That's what he says. The difference between somebody who does that such that God's intended purpose is achieved, namely they grow toward maturity, the difference between that person and somebody who undergoes the same trial but sins, the difference between those is how the person reacts to it, how they handle it, how they look at it. 
the attitude with which they undergo the trial. You say, okay, I see verse 4, that God's design is for me to mature through this difficult circumstance. But then there are some people who don't take the right attitude into the circumstance and through the circumstance, and as a result, not only do not grow in maturity, they actually end up sinning. And if you look down at verse 13, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Because each one is drawn away. And it goes on to describe the process of temptation that leads to sin, ultimately to death. Now, why does it have that in the midst of this whole discussion about trials? Because the same word that is translated trials in verse 2 is translated tempted in verse 13. Same word. So what's the difference? One is a trial that leads to maturity. The other is a temptation that leads to sin. And what's the difference? The reaction, the attitude of the individual who undergoes that circumstance. The same circumstance can be for one man or woman a trial that leads to maturity and for another a temptation that leads to sin. Same circumstance. What's the difference? The heart they take in it, into it and through it. What's God's design? Not verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. It's not God's design that this circumstance be a temptation that leads you to sin. It's God's design, verses 2 through 4, that this circumstance, this difficult trial, be one from which you emerge with growth, maturity. So that's God's design. And if you want to then achieve God's design, you have to follow his instructions in verses 5 through 8. And what does he tell us in verses 5 through 8? At the end of verse 4, he says, This is my design, that you be mature and complete. And then verse 5, he's going to say, Here's the remedy. Here's what you're going to have to do in order to achieve that. Verse 4, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So God allows these circumstances in order to develop perseverance. But the end game of the perseverance, the end, the very end, is maturity. And if you care to jot down Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, Romans 5, 3, we looked at it last week, but there's actually something in between those, perseverance and maturity, but you know what's in between? Character. Romans 5.3 says that patience in difficult circumstances produces character and that character results in mature character, maturity. James just cuts, he skips the character part, goes right to the end game and says this is ultimately what God is seeking to achieve in having you go through this difficult time. It is maturity, that you may be mature and complete. When he says complete, what's the difference between being mature and complete? Well, God wants us to be mature, to grow in each of the character qualities that are to 
belie a Christian that are to be characteristic of one who is a follower of Christ. There are all kinds of them, all kinds of character qualities that are the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. In love, joy, peace, gentleness. These are the character qualities that God is developing in us in these difficult circumstances. And God's design is that we be mature in each one of those. That we not just be mature in, in some but not in others, but be mature in all of those is the idea. And then James adds that you be mature and you be complete. Why? Why the two words? Mature, that you show growth in all of the character qualities of a Christian. But then that you also be complete, that is, that you not be lacking any of those character qualities. To put it another way, here's God's design, that you have all the character qualities of a Christian and that you be mature in all of those character qualities. And that's why God allows these difficult circumstances. That's his good design for us. And he adds at the end just a summary statement in verse 4, not lacking anything. Mature, not lacking any measure of maturity in a particular character quality, and not lacking any particular character quality, not lacking anything. A good God wants you to have everything that he designs for you. And so this good God is at work in this difficult circumstance to produce this good thing. Now, you're sitting there and going, I don't usually do it that way. When I go through a tough circumstance, I don't usually look at it the way James is saying to look at it and the way you just explained it. A good God has a good end designed through this thing so that I have every character quality that a Christian is to possess and that I'm mature in every one of those character qualities. That's what God designs. Well, that means that you should join the boat with the rest of us then. Because, notice what verse 5 says. If any of you lacks wisdom, by thinking that to yourself, you know, I don't do it that way. That's not the way I approach it then you have just admitted you are the person in the first part of verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom. And when it says, if anyone lacks wisdom in the NIV, it can sound like if there be somebody out there who lacks wisdom. Well, it's actually in the original not written as if. it's, It's an unknown as if there are some people who have all of this wisdom. It's written as a first-class condition in Greek, it's called. And here's what it means. In effect, it means since you lack wisdom. Not if you lack wisdom, but because you lack wisdom. Here's what you need to do and what I need to do. Let him ask of God. So if you believe what God has said, if you have faith, that's what faith is. Believe what God has said about the difficulties that you go through, that a sovereign but good God has brought these your way for good ends so that you will be mature, you will have the full measure of every Christian virtue, and that you will possess all of the Christian virtues, you will be complete. If you really believe that, 
then you're going to have to acknowledge that you need God's aid as you go through those trials to emerge from them as he designs. You lack wisdom, and I lack wisdom as we go through these trials. But here's the good news. Since you lack wisdom, verse 5, here's what you can do. Ask God. That's what verse 5 says, doesn't it? If any of you lacks wisdom, or since y'all lack wisdom, ask God. Well, that's good news as long as this is a good God. And James reminds us that indeed this one you are to ask for this wisdom as you undergo these difficult trials is indeed a good God. Notice how he's described at the middle of verse 5. Who gives generously to all without finding fault. God gives generously. And that word generously means, here's what it means, single or simple. God gives singly or simply, and it's, and it's translated generously. How are those related? Here's how they're related. When God gives, he does not give with an ulterior motive. He does not give to get in return. And thus the NIV has translated it generously. He has a single, simple motivation in mind when he gives, and that is for your good particularly your maturity. So because we lack the wisdom, and I'll remind you what wisdom is in just a bit, to undergo these trials as we should and achieve the end that God designs, because that's true for all of us, we should ask God. And the God we ask is this kind of God. He has a single, pure motivation at all times when he gives to his children. It is for their ultimate good. He gives generously. And notice what else it says about him in verse 5. He gives generously without finding fault. <laughs> so the God you go to does not do this. This is what James is saying. He does not give with an ulterior motive. He has absolutely pure motives. So you can go to him with confidence, and he gives without finding fault. That is, he does not say, you again. Weren't you here this morning? Didn't I grant you wisdom an hour ago? What's your problem, bozo? How many times am I going to have to tell you? Some of you might have a King James Version. It says in the King James Version at the end of verse 5, and upbraideth not. Anybody have that? It says and upbraideth, doesn't it? Not. The NIV says, without finding fault, upbraid. To upbraid somebody is to, is to castigate them, isn't it? It's to take them to task. The King James says, God doesn't upbraid you when you come to him and say, what are you doing here again? When are you ever going to learn? God does not do that. God delights in his people coming and recognizing that they are dependent upon him for the wisdom that only he can give to see them through the difficulties that he has designed in our lives to produce this ultimately good thing, mature Christian character. And so God bids us come. If anyone, since you all lack wisdom, ask God. Who gives generously without ulterior motive? 
And he does not find fault, upbraid you when you come to him. He bids you to come to him. And the thing for which you ask is wisdom. Since you, last, since you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Simply put, wisdom is applied knowledge. It is the ability to make application of what I know. The ability to put into practice what I know in this particular circumstance. Wisdom is applied knowledge. Knowledge without wisdom is just information. Lots of people with that kind of knowledge, right? They have the information. They have the head knowledge. But then it's a matter of taking what I know and actually putting it into practice, applying it in the particular circumstance. That's wisdom, applied knowledge. And so I think you can see the logic here, can you not? God brings trials into our lives, and we can consider it joy because we know that a good God is bringing it for good purposes. The good purpose is to produce perseverance and character and Christian maturity so that we're lacking nothing. That's God's good design. But we also humbly have to admit that we forget that, that we have difficulty seeing that and achieving that in our circumstances. To put it another way, we lack wisdom. We lack the ability to apply what we know. So what do we do? Ask God. Who gives to who in verse 5? Who does he give? He gives generously to all. That would include you, without finding fault, and then notice the promise at the end of verse 5. It will be given to him. Thanks be to God. You ask God, Lord, help me to achieve what you have designed for me in this circumstance. Grant me the ability to apply what I know to be true about you and about myself and about your designs for me. I know these things, but I need the ability to apply these things in this particular circumstance. I ask for your wisdom, and it will be given to him, God says. Now, where do I get this knowledge, the things that I know that need to be applied? I mean, James said in verse 3, because you know. You already know some stuff. He assumes you know some stuff. You know that the testing of your faith, the trying of your faith, produces perseverance. Well, how do you know that? Where did you get that knowledge? Thank you. From Scripture. So this wisdom that I need from God, which is applying knowledge, first begins with the knowledge. Where do I get the knowledge? I get the knowledge, what I know about God and about myself and what he's doing. I get that from Scripture. So here's a prerequisite for you to go and ask God for wisdom. The assumption is you already have knowledge. You're asking him now how to apply that knowledge. Or to put it another way, the assumption is you know Scripture. 
God, this is, this is what I know about you. This is what I've learned about you. This is what you have taught me about yourself and about myself and about your purposes in your world. You've given me that in your holy word in Scripture. And so the person who comes to Jesus, to God asking for this wisdom is someone who has first looked into the pages of Holy Scripture and acquired knowledge of who he is, who we are, and what he's doing, what he's seeking to achieve. Okay, I know that. I know that from Scripture. Let's assume that. I go to a church that teaches the Bible. I read the Bible as best I can on a regular basis. But now I need the ability to apply that. And it says, ask God. Now here's what God does when he gives you that wisdom. God is doing, and some of you are taking some notes, so if you care to jot down, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Here's what God does. He takes what you already understand and know from Scripture and the Holy Spirit moves upon your heart so that you not only know it intellectually, but you accept it, you receive its importance and its significance. You appropriate it personally, to put it another way. And that's a ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer that an unbeliever does not have. Did you know an unbeliever and a believer can know the same amount of the Bible? If an unbeliever wanted to study the Bible, give his life to studying the Bible, he could know as much or more about it than you could. I've got books on my shelf that are brilliant explanations of the Bible that I'm convinced are written by unbelievers. Liberal theologians. They deny that Jesus is God. They deny that Jesus is bodily raised from the dead. They deny all of these truths of Scripture, but they've studied the Bible. And they have all of these insights about what the Bible teaches. They can know all kinds of things about the Bible, but the Holy Spirit is not at work in their lives to show them the significance, the importance of that knowledge. The Holy Spirit does that, 1 Corinthians 2.14, in the life of a believer. He, in effect, the Holy Spirit does, turns the light on. Here's a big word for what 1 Corinthians 2.14 is saying about the ministry of the Holy Spirit on the mind of a believer. The big term is illumination. The Holy Spirit illumines the mind of a believer. Now, what's illumine mean? This room is illuminated because there are lights on. To illumine means to turn the light on. And when you now, back to James chapter 1, when you ask God for wisdom, it assumes that you have this knowledge that you've acquired from His Word, that you are in His Word, that you read His Word, that tells you about Him, about you, and about His purposes. And now you're asking God, Lord God, help me. Turn the light on for me. Help me to see the significance, the importance of what Your Word says, the knowledge that You have given me in Holy Scripture. And the result of that, you knowing Scripture and God turning the light on, is wisdom. Applied knowledge. Now, you say, okay, I'm good with that. Everybody good with that so far? That's the deal in verses 1 through 5. Trials, you can consider it pure joy because of what you know. 
But you have to apply what you know. Applying what you know means wisdom. Since you don't have wisdom, ask God. And God will take what you know and turn the light on in the midst of the circumstance such that you can accept, receive. That's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, that you welcome what God now is doing in this particular circumstance. But verses 6 through 8 say that you don't just come flippantly and say, you know, God, turn on that wisdom. Hit the switch, turn the light on. Because if a person comes and asks God, but he wavers in his belief, then God has a warning. Notice what verses 6 through 8 say. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. When he asks, verse 6, he must believe. Now remember, what's being tested is the genuineness of what you believe. The genuineness of your faith, verse 3. It's being tested by this trial, this circumstance in which I need wisdom to apply the knowledge that I have. And when you come to God, the prerequisite for coming to God is, Lord, I believe. I believe what you have taught. Now I want to apply what I believe and what I know to this particular circumstance. But I believe what you've taught me. I believe who you are. I believe who I am. I believe what you say about yourself, that you are good and that you are sovereign and that you have good ends, purposes in mind for me. I believe all of that wholeheartedly. So Lord, grant me the ability to apply the knowledge I have now to this circumstance. But if you doubt that, if you doubt that God is good, the end will not be achieved. Now, isn't it true that though none of us, if I were to give you a test right now, a written test, and I were to say, do you believe that God is good? Every last person here would say yes. That's on a written test. But how about in a life test? How about in the hospital room? Now it's not the written test. Now I'm flat on my back. Now do I believe God is good? Heaven forbid. But what about a tragedy? What about the loss of a child? I have two children. I just say, you know, I say it for illustrative purposes. I hate to say it. I hate to shudder to think about it. But what about something like that? See, it's easy for us to sit here and say, yeah, but I believe all that. I don't doubt. <laughs> But something like that happens, and you're prone to doubt, and I'm prone to doubt, aren't we? And God says, when you come to him and you say, Lord, I need to apply what I know to this circumstance, to this diagnosis, to this illness, to this circumstance in my life, this loss in my life, God says, you come believing. You still believe that I am good. You still believe that I am sovereign. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. He that comes to God must first believe that he is. And that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, without believing, it's impossible to please God. And so James is saying, this is the good God, you know that. This is a good God who gives with a single-minded purpose, generously. He doesn't find fault. He doesn't upbraid you when you come. He's, he's pleased to give to you this wisdom, this insight, this illumination in your circumstances. But you must, you must believe who he is, what he's like, what he's doing in your life is ultimately for good purposes. And then you come and you ask God. And his promise holds sure every time. It will be given. The wisdom will be given to you. But the contrast at the end of verse 6 is the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Unstable in all he does at the end of verse 8. And haven't, you, haven't you all known people like this? I know none of us are like this, but haven't you known people like this? Go from one thing to another. Blown away in life from one circumstance to another. Never getting a handle on it. Always the victim of circumstances. Right? Their entire life is one big fat pity party. I mean, this happened and that happened and that happened and I really can't serve God because of all of this stuff. This is the person who has not applied what they know in the circumstances. And as a result, they're all over the place. There are Christians like that in our churches all over the place right now. Undoubtedly some here. And all of us struggle with it if we're not there. You see, you fail to appropriate God's wisdom in the circumstances. And then you will come out of that thing not mature, but rather muttering. You'll be muttering to yourself, what was that all about? What happened there? And here's the really ugly part of that. Not only are you muttering as you come out the backside of that one, but guess what's waiting for you? Maybe the next day, the next week, the next month. Guess what's waiting? Another one. And now it compounds itself. And then you have a person who fits this description. They're back and forth. Unstable. Unstable in their walk with the Lord. All because... They failed to appropriate his wisdom in the circumstances that he designs in their lives to produce maturity. Okay. So what kinds of circumstances are we talking about? Well, there are of various kinds, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. So there are of all sorts of varieties. In verses 9 through 11, James gives... A couple of examples, and not examples that you would necessarily think of first. But here's what he says. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. So he starts out with a, the brother in humble circumstances. This is the poor, materially poor brother in the Lord. That's what it's talking about. 
I think the King James says, the brother of low degree. And so in the, you know, in the, in the uh, social strata of that day, you had degrees of people on the material ladder, and this person is of, on the lower rung, low degree. Humble circumstances, the NIV says. They don't have much. They're poor. But what should the poor person do? Well, the poor person should appropriate what he knows. Ask God for wisdom in his difficult circumstance. The ability to see it for what it is and what it will produce. And so a guy who, or, or woman, a man or woman who is poor should be able to exult, is the idea, in the fact that he is in a position that God is going to use for good. But the same thing is true on the opposite side. Verse 10. The one who is rich should exult, take pride, in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. Verse 11 goes on to give examples of things that are fading away. So what does the rich man know? Well, the rich man knows what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because these things on earth are destroyed by rust and moth, right? So lay up treasures in, in heaven. You know that. And you appropriate that. You apply that knowledge to your circumstance. This guy's particular circumstance, or gal's circumstance, is they are materially wealthy. They're on the top rung, or high rung, on the social ladder. But how should they view that? They should view that with the wisdom that God provides, seeing it for what it is, and coming through that circumstance as God intends. Now, let me just deal with this quickly, and we'll move on. Some of you are sitting there going, no, wait a minute, I thought trials were things you don't want. And here, James is giving an example, one example of a trial being somebody who's well off. I'll take that trial. What kind of hardship goes with that? What kind of problems could possibly go with having money? Hmm. I don't know. Look at Hollywood. Or better yet, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Don't look at it now. (laughs) But Deuteronomy chapter 8 is about God preparing his people to go into the land that he had promised them. And he warns them about the temptations of being well off in the land of milk and honey. You may forget God, he tells them. You may see yourself as self-sufficient. All sorts of temptations in the circumstance of even being well off that require the wisdom of God to be applied to that so that God's good ends of maturity in Christian character are achieved. Verse 12 then gives a promise. Blessed is the man who perseveres. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This should be the course of life for the one who calls his or herself a Christian. 
that they advance in maturity through the circumstances that God allows into their lives, that, to put it another way, they grow in spiritual maturity. Until the time that we stand before the Lord and receive our reward. But not everybody handles it that way, and that's what verse 13 is about. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. It's not God's design to use this trial for you to sin. It's God's design to achieve maturity through the wisdom that he will provide if you ask without doubting. But Satan's design is certainly to use this very same circumstance for you to sin. Now, what causes you to sin in the one minute we have left? Verse 13. Excuse me, verse 14. Each one is tempted when... By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. In verses 14 and 15, James uses two metaphors for how this works. I'll talk about them quickly, and then we'll have to quit. The first metaphor is a fishing illustration. The terms that he uses in verse 14 are from fishing. And so verse 14 says, when each one is tempted, when by his own evil desire he's dragged away. And the idea is of a lure hanging out there that you have a desire to bite on. And it drags you away because of your internal desire to have it. Because of your own internal desire, not because of the external circumstance, because of what you desire, what you want, wanting what you want rather than what God desires to achieve, because of that, you're dragged away, enticed by what's placed out in front of you as a potential temptation. But then the other metaphor is verse 15 of childbirth. Desire conceives. It's conceived internally. But then it is manifest externally, given full, full birth in the form of our sin in this particular circumstance. And what's the result? The end of verse 15, it gives birth to death. Hmm. Can mean physical death. But death in the Bible, and this is my last point, because people are yelling out there. Death in the Bible means separation. It brings forth death. It brings forth separation. When you do this, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. Because we've all done this. We've all failed the test at certain times. It doesn't mean I'm not saved. But every time it happens, it does separate me from God in terms of my fellowship with Him. It does affect my fellowship with God. Now, it may result in physical death as well, depending on where the temptation leads, what kind of sin. The Bible's full of illustrations of that as well, but in every last case, it results in a separation of some sort, a separation in my harmony with God. I'm still His child if I'm truly saved, but it harms my fellowship with Him. Now, what's the antidote to all of that? In the end of verses 16 through 18, 
Let's just read this and and really be done. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. This God who is in control, who allows these trials in your life, is, was, and always will be a good God who gives only good gifts to his children. Remember that is what James is saying. And the supreme illustration of that is in verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Do you doubt that God is good in your difficult circumstance? Remember this. He chose to give you birth. He chose to save you. He chose to give you spiritual life, to make you alive through the word of truth. That you might be a kind of, the end of verse 18, first fruits of all that he created. God has started a good work in you, and it's his design that that good work be completed in you. And it happened when you heard the word of truth, and you were given spiritual life. And next week we're going to see, beginning in verse 19, that the word of truth is to continue to be operative in our lives until Jesus comes or he takes us home. We'll look beginning in verse 19 next week. Actually, in two weeks, Dan will be teaching next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this look into your word and how you use circumstances in our lives to produce good. Lord, I forget that. I forget it because I'm forgetful, limited in my human abilities. But Lord, I not only forget it, I chafe against it. Because I have evil desires. I have my own agenda. I want things to go a particular way. And when they don't go that way, a trial that you designed for good to produce maturity in my life becomes a temptation that leads me to sin. Lord, I confess that this happens more times than, than than I want to think about. It's painful to think about how many times I stray, how many times we stray. Lord, I acknowledge, we acknowledge as your people that we lack wisdom. We do lack it. We need it every moment of every day. Thank you for your promise that you will give it to those who ask, believing without doubting. Thank you for the kind of God you are. Thank you for demonstrating to us over and over again the kind of generous, non-fault-finding God that you are. And you've shown it to us most profoundly in giving us the new birth, giving us spiritual life through the word of truth. Lord, I pray that when we meet in two weeks, that we'll be able to see how the word of truth then not only began this good work, but continues this good work in it, continues this good work in us. Go with us this week, Lord, as we seek to live life, live life wisely. Help us to be people, Lord, who every moment or every day are breathing from our hearts to you the prayer, Lord, grant me wisdom in this particular situation. Thereby may we achieve what you design and bring glory to you. Grant us safety until we return next Lord's Day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.